I think one of the measures of a leader is how he handles conflict. In fact, the older I get, the more I see that there are some really good leaders who don't become great leaders because they don't know how to biblically handle conflict. But I will say God's called you to be faithful, not successful. And we can succeed at the wrong things and call it a win. But I'd rather be faithful at the right things and not be noticed. How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. My name is Hannah Seymour, your co-host and daughter to the man of the show, Michael Easley. You, you work too hard at this. <laughs> I got to do something right. Okay, you know? all right. No, you're doing lots right. Oh, okay. something right. Okay, yeah. I got it. Yeah, right. Okay, Dad. Hard-hitting question for you. What's your biggest pet peeve about the Christian life? Well, I have to hold up a mirror, and it does drive me nuts, is that how are believers distinct from the culture? Mm. Because in in my, let's say, almost 40-ish years of following Christ, I've seen a shift, and I know I'm going to sound old and crotchety, but... Things, you know, go back to our grandparents who were believers and they didn't smoke and drink and chew and they go to movies, didn't play cards. And we call that legalism. Sure. And we can debate that and we can discuss that. I'm not against saying that was probably excessive. But what what differentiates us today? Yeah. We go to the same films. We we do the same activities. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not anti-alcohol completely. I think alcohol in moderation, uh, wine is a celebration of life. Probably make some people upset about that. Um, alcoholism, intoxication is sin. Sure. Uh, we're to have the confines of sex within a heterosexual monogamous relationship, which today many Christians have jettisoned that and said, no, no, it doesn't matter. So little by little, the Christian has become just like the culture. Yeah. And so I have to ask in my own life, do I look like the culture? I don't want to be prude and weird Mm -hmm. and some, you know, forgive me, my King James friends, but a King James-ish separatistic person Mm -hmm. that doesn't live in the world or of the world were to be in it, not of it. So that to me is always the fine line. And I think today Christians pride themselves on living on such an edge yeah, that it could be just a centimeter and now we're living in sin. Yeah, But I've got to hold that mirror up just like everyone does to say, am I distinct from my culture? Hmm. So you're going to talk about three main subjects today. Number one, how am I distinct from the culture? Number two, individuals matter to God. And it's a good reminder. We've talked about it before, but we're going to look at it again. And finally, that each of us has a responsibility to be faithful no matter what 
our context or culture. So let's jump into Nehemiah chapter 10. Well, let's go back to chapter 9, verse 38 to set the framework. Now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Now, this takes us back to the failure of those leaders, priests, and fathers. Noticeably absent, no king was listed. So, Chapter 938 probably belongs with chapter 10. So let's call it chapter 10, verse 1, just for conversation's sake, to set up what's going to happen. So in Nehemiah chapter 10, we have this transition. It's written down, and we're going to sign it. We're going to sign the document. Now, some of us remember the name John Hancock, right? I sure hope you do. I'm going to be upset if you don't. John Hancock's name figures prominently on what document? I'm not going to tell you if you don't know. I'm too embarrassed to tell you. John Hancock signed his name beautifully and prominently. And the lore is that he said King George ought to be able to see that without his glasses. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's illustrative. When we sign a document, we're putting our name to sign the dotted line, which means we're going to have fidelity commitment to the document. If you've ever purchased a home, you've signed a stack of papers. Now, much of this has moved to electronics where you just do a a DocuSign auto signature thing. But if you bought a house in the last four or five years, you sign a stack of papers. I remember the first time Cindy and I purchased and sold a home, signing papers for what seemed like an hour. I think my wife, who's a realtor, probably understood about 50, maybe 60% of those documents. I think our closing attorney probably understood a few more. But none of us in that room understood every document we were signing. And I had a running joke. Every one of these documents we're signing basically says, if I don't pay my mortgage, you can penalize me or take my house away. (laughs) But litigation and problems that arise with people not making payments, problems with houses, problems with lenders on and on and on, create this paper trail of all these documents. For most Americans, the most emotional and expensive decision they make is the purchase and selling of a home. And corollary then are signing all these documents. What are we doing when we sign this? We're saying we're committed. We're saying we're going to follow through. We're saying we're part of it. I'm part of this club, this membership, this team, this group. I'm going to sign it and legally bind it, and maybe have a notary, maybe have witnesses that Michael put his name on a piece of paper, and I'm going to hold him to it. Nehemiah chapter 10 is very similar. The signatories of this document in chapter 10 verse 1 are listed. Now on the sealed document were the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hekeliah and Zedekiah, and then a long list of names that I'm not going to read to you. Verse 28, now the rest of the people, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons and daughters, and all who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen's their nobles, and taking on themselves 
a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinance and statutes. Now, that's the preface. That's the big stack of papers we all just signed. And the list in chapter 10 of these individuals that matter to God are all signatories on this document. They're committed. We might expect to see a covenant here, that all these people are cutting a covenant. It's not the typical word used for a covenant. The emphasis is the making of this word. We still have the sense of cutting a promise here, but Nehemiah's name is placed first and prominently, likely because of his rank. So just for illustration, think of that as John Hancock. He's the deputy of the Persian monarchy. He's the governor of Jerusalem. The names are grouped in three major lists. 21 are priestly names that are recorded, and these are heads of fathers' households. We have 17 that are Levitical names, which suggest a long-standing. They knew they were part of the Levitical tribe, so to speak. So all the leaders sealed the document. We saw that in chapter 9, verse 38, and chapter 10, verse 1. The idea of a seal is very common in the ancient Near East. Literally thousands of seals have been discovered in archaeological digs. Over a thousand of them have been found and documented, according to Victor Matthews. Now, we might compare this signing the dotted line idea to the stipulations of the law to a seal. And again, Nehemiah is the primary signator who heads the list. Now, the stipulations, or we might call separations, are listed in chapter 10, verses 28 to 39. Let me read some of these. Verse 28, Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who had knowledge and understanding, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in the law of God, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinance and his statutes. And that we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. As for the people of the land who bring wares or any grain on Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy them on Sabbath or a holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Also, we place on ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, the continual burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moon, the appointed times, for holy things, and for the sin offering to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. Verse 34, Likewise we cast lot for the supply of wood for the priest, the Levites, so the people might bring it to the house of our God according to our father's household at fixed times annually. Verse 35, They might bring the first fruits of the ground, first fruits of every tree, Verse 36, and bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons, our cattle, 
the firstborn of our herds and flocks. Verse 37, the first of our dough, meaning bread, the fruit of every tree, new wine, the oil to the priests. Verse 36, the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites. And when the Levites receive the tithes, the Levites will bring a tenth of the tithes to the house of God, to the chambers of the storehouse. Now this entire passage is doing two things. Here's what you want to hear. You're being separated from the people to the law of God. Separated from the peoples around you, from the influences around you, to the law of God. They stress their commitment by taking on this oath of a curse. This calls down calamity on them if they fail to keep their promise. It's reminiscent of Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 15 and following, the blessings and the curse. Now this section is, in a sense, the climax of both the combined work of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra, of course, being the priest, Nehemiah being the governor who establishes the framework for which Israel can worship. You see, here's the deal. A vague nod to the law of God is not enough. Good intentions don't mean a thing. If you sign those mortgage papers and you don't pay your mortgage on time, you're going to be in trouble. A confession of faith needs to be theologically accurate and practically visible to people. And that's why the document is drafted. To say that I believe in something and not obey it is not to believe it. Again, to say I believe in something and not obey it is to say I don't believe it. Now this covenant had some points that are difficult for us to embrace in our culturally relevant, tolerant, diverse, loving world in which we navigate. Number one was no intermarriage. When you read something like that, it sounds bigoted and people will make all kinds of accusations against God and the Jew in the Old Testament, but that's because they don't know the context. This had nothing to do with race. It had to do with idolatry. When the Israelites married outside of Israel, when they married foreign nations, they brought idolatry into Israel. Now, there were exceptions. When you had someone who embraced Yahweh Elohim, who embraced the God of Abraham, then that person, we call him a convert to Judaism, but when that person believed in Yahweh Elohim, for example, Ruth the Moabitess, who is in the lineage of Jesus, scratch your head on that one. So it wasn't a a prohibition. You could never marry anyone outside the nations. It was you don't marry someone of a nationality that is anti-Yahweh Elohim that's going to bring idolatry and immorality into the camp. A second aspect of no intermarriage was that these intermarriages would create an unfriendly alliance with a people group that was ultimately going to be an enemy of Israel. And remember the Abrahamic covenant, it's about the land. Malachi, Ezra, Nehemiah all confront these kinds of sins. Now let's take this intermarriage to the New Testament. There's a parallel here. Paul explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we are not to be unequally yoked. It's the same principle. So don't let people teach you theology that don't know 
the history and the context of Israel. They were not to intermarry, to mix. It wasn't nationalities or racial issues. It was idolatry and unfriendly alliances with enemies of God. So you were not to be unequally yoked. Secondly, Sabbath and Sabbath year. This to me is a fabulous part of the Bible that most Christians miss. And there are many teachings in the Old Testament about the importance of Sabbath. Taking a break from their labors was a statement of faith and a time to reflect on their week, to go to Shabbat, we would say. Let's say for you and me, go to church, to take a break from our routines, to rest. Here's what was happening in Nehemiah's time frame. Foreign traders would come knock on the door metaphorically. So let's create a loophole in Sabbath law. A foreign trader comes, well, they're not Jews. They're not breaking their Sabbath. They don't have a Sabbath. But to recognize the spirit of the law and the tone of the day was to understand rest was a gift from God. This wasn't simply about commerce and blue laws and closing stores and giving people a break. It was to give people an opportunity to rest as a gift from God. To say it very simply, you are more effective working six days a week or even five and trusting God with the two off than you are working seven days a week. To not work all the time was to say, I don't trust God in the interim. Now, here's one that also will keep you thinking. Sabbath is the only one of the Decalogue, only one of the Ten Commandments, that was not implicitly or explicitly repeated in the New Testament. For example, even though murder is mentioned in the Decalogue, it's still a sin to murder in the New Testament. To take the Lord's name in vain is still a sin, even though it's not specifically listed like a Ten Commandment in the New Testament. The only time Sabbath is mentioned implicitly is when Jesus is questioned about it, and of course you know his answer. Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. What's he saying? God gave Sabbath as a gift. You have the freedom to rest. So this was part of the law of the Old Testament. Again, I'll say it, you can get as much work done in six days and seven. You just have to choose to trust God and not waste your time during those six days of labor. Well, another aspect that is they're signing is to support the temple with a contribution. Literally, it was called a ransom. Now, we think of a ransom of getting someone who's been kidnapped out of captivity. But what this is about was an annual contribution that supplied money for the priest and the Levites. It wasn't just their salary, but it maintained the bread of presence, the daily offerings, the animal sacrifices, and the temple complex. This was a massive operation. And the people were saying, we'll give a very small contribution to underwrite the operation of the temple complex. Other responsibilities they pledged to was bringing wood. Now, this may seem like sort of a, okay, that's interesting, but chapter 6 of Leviticus talks about the requirement for wood. This was an enormous responsibility. To keep the fire going for the sacrificial system was an enormous job. And if it's everyone's responsibility, it's no one's responsibility. In Joshua chapter 9, it was given to the Gibeonites as kind of a punishment. In this period, the temple was greatly understaffed, so now they need another plan. 
So there was this rotation system and contribution system to provide wood for the offerings. Fifth, we have the first fruit, the crops, the firstborn. This was all throughout Scripture. Again, to give the first thing back to the Lord was a statement of faith and an act of worship and a declaration that I trust God, that I'm going to give this first part, but he's going to continue to provide for me. Of course, by the New Testament, we learn that we're to be cheerful in our first fruit giving. Edwin Yamauchi writes, it's not only the best that belongs to God, but the first. It would be presumptuous for man to enjoy something without first giving God his portion. You know, for years, Cindy and I have lived under this very simple philosophy. We live under our income, we avoid debt, we give first, and we save and invest later. We live under our income, we avoid debt, we give first, and we invest and save later. I just believe giving is a statement that it belongs to God. Why wouldn't I give him the best and the first cheerfully, trusting him to provide for me as we go forward, live under our income, avoid debt, give first, and invest and save for the future. Well, sixth were annual tithes. This tithe was a contribution to the Levites to provide for the priest. And documenting this, think about this. It's one thing to sign it and say, yes, um, I'll do this as an oath and a curse on me if I fail you to give. But it's not only the document and the signing it, it was an accountability system because all these people's names were on these documents. The Levites lived off the tithe of the Jew who worked for a living, we might say. Don't miss it. They themselves had the tithe. may seem strange, but they were tithing the tithe they received. And for anyone who's in ministry, if you're a missionary, you draw support from a parachurch organization, you're on staff at a church, you need to give too. Even though the resources you are given come from other believers who have given their offering, you need to be a person of generosity as well. Well, the final statement was, we will not neglect the house of God, summarizes their obligation. And Ezra and Nehemiah had been used by God to lead these people to a place, to a proper priority spiritually. And I find it very important, secondly, was financially. Their jobs, their livelihood, their contribution from wood, their ransom for the temple complex, the first fruit, the first animal, the first of the flock, the annual tithe, and even the Levite was to give. What a statement. We're going to build a wall to reestablish worship. We're going to have Ezra the priest teach us the law. We're going to respond to the law. And now we're documenting an accountability of expenses of the temple complex. That's how seriously God takes this relationship. So what we have is a solemn agreement that they're going to follow the law of God to support the temple complex and all that was required. Why? To worship God according to the way he prescribed. Let's think about three lessons from Nehemiah chapter 10. Number one, if you are a follower, a believer in Jesus Christ, ask yourself the question, am I distinct from the culture around me? As we talked about in the beginning of the program, I think about this a lot. How do my neighbors see me? Do they see me as some religious fanatic? Do they see me as one of them? And is that a good thing? 
Am I prudish? Am I rough? Am I religious? Am I rude? Or am I a slap-happy guy that doesn't look any different? And I would like to encourage you to think about that. Your language, your attitude, your actions, your activities. We're talking about a leadership process. If we're going to influence people, how do we do that? People see everything we say and do, whether we're aware or not. Our conduct, our eye contact, our attitude communicates. And I would like you to be a person who loves Christ, who has confidence in the middle of a crazy world. You avoid the appearance of evil and sin. You know when to walk away from a situation without being a fanatic. Are you salt and light? Are you and I compelling to others? How distinct are we from the culture in which we live? Second lesson. Every time we come across a list of names in the Bible, our tendency is to skip it. They're obscure people. We don't know who they are. We might pause and wonder, and if you're a good Bible student, you might even chase some of those names around. Of course, the most obvious point, individuals matter to God. In these names, known to Nehemiah and Ezra, but now obscure, yet they're important to God. Your name's important to God. We need to be reminded, you and I matter to God. At times, he might seem impersonal and far away, ethereal, distant. He's deeply interested in you. He knows you by name. He loves you. He cares about you. And every time you read a name that you don't know who that person is in Scripture, think about the fact that most people don't know your name or mine, but God does, and he cares. And finally, the point may be more here. Nehemiah is intending to record each individual to have a responsibility to be faithful to God. Could it be that what Nehemiah's objective here is, I want you to sign the dotted line so that you're part of a corporate group? Because the individual is healthy when he or she is surrounded by other healthy individuals. What does it take to have an Israelite community? It takes a relationship to uphold the law, to obey, to worship God as he intended, to give of the first, to give a tithe to the Levitical system, to haul wood once in a while. We so love the word community, doing community, living in community, being in community. I don't have community. I'm sick of hearing the word community. It's because we don't have it. It takes faith to be part of a community. But more importantly, it takes a shared value of accountability, of truth-speaking, co-strugglers, co-travelers. The authentic Christian life is the admission you cannot do this alone. You need the body of Christ to help and encourage you, and the body of Christ needs you. You see, you and I have an individual responsibility to Christ vertically and to a community horizontally. It's important that we live faithful in the midst of a faithless culture. So one of the themes that we pulled from this chapter to go along with our idea of the leadership process, things that godly leaders need to be thinking about and considering, is this idea that there is a time for warning and correction. And that doesn't feel so great to all of us all the time. But, I mean, tell me about that. What does that really look like for a leader to know that there's a time for warning and correction? 
if a leader isn't walking close to God's word, God's spirit, and God's people, it's going to be tough to begin with. Some of us are non-confrontational by nature, and that's really hard. Others maybe are a little bit too ready, fire, aim. Sure. <laughs> so I think the, the balance therein is a, a leader has to be, I like the phrase, 30,000 feet above the organization, above the family, above the mission, above whatever it is you're involved with, to ask answer the question, are we on task? Are we doing the right things the right way? And this really is the fulcrum of leadership. This is the power, but also it's painful mm. to at times say, wait, I think we're off. Wait, I think this is wrong. You know, I've been accused many times in 30 plus years of being a little curmudgeon And perhaps some of that's accurate. But at the end of the day, my hope is for the local church, are we making disciples? Are we teaching people the truth? Are we running on the, the latest fad, the latest tangent? And a lot of times churches get caught up in this bigger, better, newer, more. We get into a comparison trend, and that can be true in business. It can be true in a home. It can be true as a homemaker watching another homemaker. It can be true in all kinds of ways. Uh, comparisons, the kiss of death of gratitude, to come back and say, what do I know for sure? I was just uh, corresponding with a missionary that's abroad, and uh, he was asking the question about competition and comparison in ministry. So appreciated his question. And I wrote back to him, you know, I can't answer specifically your situation, but I will say God's called you to be faithful, not successful. Mm -hmm. And we can succeed at the wrong things and call it a win, but I'd rather be faithful at the right things and not be noticed. Mm -hmm. And so one key character of his leader is, can you, can you call sin, sin? Mm -hmm. You don't have to be mad and screaming and yell about it, but can you say, you know, that that's wrong. We should not be about that. Or that's maybe not black and white wrong but it's taking us in a direction mm -hmm. and if someone doesn't say that every organization every group always lists away from scripture no one ever drifts back toward the bible it's an intentional choice to say wait a minute is this what god's word is teaching us clearly mm -hmm. clarity wins the day and if the scripture is clear let's stay clear and have the courage to correct to rebuke to reprove with patience with loving kindness, with tenderness, but being willing to say, no, that's wrong. And a leader uniquely has that privilege and that pain to call it out. You mentioned earlier the idea of knowing the direction that you're headed towards, even within your family dynamics. Was there ever a time in our family where you kind of saw, man, we're going in the wrong direction. We need to recalibrate, correct what we're doing. What does that look like as a husband, <laughs> as a father? What does that look like? Well, since Mrs. Easley isn't here to defend herself, <laughs> you know, every marriage has conflict. Every marriage has different opinions sure. about how things you're raised a certain way I'm raised a certain way your mom was raised differently than I was raised and of course that's the right way uh, <laughs> and so you have to find that you know okay let's talk about what our family is going to be on a few occasions there were hills I was willing to die for <laughs> now it was painful because your mother is a very strong personality but there were a number of times when she would make her case, she'd make her argument, she might make several runs at me on something. And I would tell, when I would teach marriage conferences, especially to husbands, I'd say, there's a time when you have to have the courage to say no. 
not just because you're the male of the species, but to say, wait a minute, this is moving us away. You know, firsthand, I was a late adopter to technology for our family. Yeah. I had lots of concerns about gaming and technology and time on all these instruments, and you and your sister had less time yeah. than most of your peer. Um, and I'm not saying that's right or wrong. But I do think it's illustrative of do you have the courage to go against the culture and the trend and say, as a father, as a mother, as a parent, I'm going to say no. Even though everybody else has given their child a technology at age five, um, we're going to wait. Mm-hmm. We're going to prayerfully consider this. Let's put some fun and creativity back into books and arts and crafts and service projects and being outside, yep. for example. So that's just one simple illustration. But to your point about theological, uh, your mom and I have had our handfuls of arguments over what's right and what's wrong to teach. And uh, I just hope every parent gets their child in the book. Get them reading early, reading the scripture early so that uh, they're hearing the words. Mm -hmm. Because if we go back to the recurring theme, God's word, God's spirit, God's people, I'm trusting God's word to impress upon that child's heart and mind, God's spirit to work, and then God's people to come around them and shape them because nobody can do this alone. Hmm. Well, you had a conversation with Dennis Rainey, and Dennis is an interesting person to talk about this with. He founded Family Life Today, which just celebrated their 40th anniversary. But think about a couple who start something from the ground, just the two of them, that grows into this monster. I can imagine there were lots of times in his career where he sensed, man, we got to correct the path that we're on. We're headed down this wrong thing or the folks that I'm leading, I need to warn them about X, Y, Z. So you asked Dennis, when does a leader need to warn or correct people? I think one of the measures of a leader is how he handles conflict. In fact, the older I get, the more I see that there are some really good leaders who don't become great leaders because they don't know how to biblically handle conflict. So they handle it back-channel, politically. They don't confront the situation. They don't have the guts, the courage, the spiritual backbone. Still, they got a wishbone. And they sweep things under the rug. And after you swept a number of things under the rug, the rug gets kind of big after a while. And uh, I think it's very possible in a business, in a church, in a ministry, in a family, to sleep this stuff and not deal with it, but have courage to step up and provide a warning, a correction, call people up. I love the story of one of Billy Graham and Ruth Graham's grandsons who, who wasn't doing well. And the story was told that Ruth Graham, at Christmas, bought earrings that were Christmas light bulbs and gave them to her grandson as he was into earrings. And so she was just foxy enough to join him in his little rebellion, what he was doing, and gave him (laughs) Christmas light bulbs for him to wear on his ears. Never poked fun at him, just said, I thought you might like these. And that grandson said that that love of Ruth Graham was so steadfast. She didn't have to preach. She just went after him with love, compassion, and listened. And uh, I think the real challenge for any any leader, any follower of Christ, is to hold truth in the proper tension with grace. 
So you got to give people the freedom to fail, to mess up. But at the same time, you can't let go of the standard. And as a leader, we're not called to be one of them. We're called to set the pace so that people will follow. And that means you got to keep the standard in front of them. you got to remember uh, what the truth is and remind them of that. But then when they fail, you offer the salve of grace, uh, forgiveness, compassion for those who fail, because we all we all need it. And the church needs to be a safe place, and ministries need to be a safe place, and businesses need to be a safe place. But, but if a leader can't confront wrong that's occurring in those that he loves, whether it be a family, whether it be a church, a business, a ministry, in my opinion, I've seen this. I think you put a cap on how much and how well God will use you. Handling conflict and courageously speaking the truth to people, I think, is one of the real tests. We need to revisit in Christian leadership today as followers of Christ, because I've been reading through the Gospels over the past couple of years. Jesus was no softy. I mean, he played hardball with the Pharisees. He called it like it was. Uh, but he was—he did it with perfect love. I would love to have seen some of those confrontations. I'd like to have seen what perfect love looked like while holding up the perfect standard to an imperfect, pharisaical, religious person. It does seem when he when he talks to the Pharisees and his his enemies, we'd say he's a lot more pungent and hard. And yet, when he's rebuking his disciples. There's that correction, but also that love, uh, you know, the way a parent would correct a child, because this is for your best. And um, it's interesting, the anger he demonstrates towards his enemies is is patently different than the uh, confrontation uh, towards Peter or others. No doubt about it. And the reason he could do that was he knew his father. And another statement made about Jesus repeatedly that blows my mind, which I just don't understand, is when when he said, I do nothing. I say nothing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Other than what I hear the Father saying and what I hear the Father telling me to do. I only do that which the Father tells me to do, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Kind of dismantles all of my activities. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, again, you got to come back to what Tozier said. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. When you keep God... Uh, in context, and see him for who he is. He'll turn you from sin. He'll help you seize the moment. But the problem is, we haven't rejected God. We've reduced him. You've, you've probably heard the poem that Wilbur Reese wrote called Three Dollars Worth of God. Oh, you ever yeah. heard that, Michael? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, I wrote a book called Choosing a Life That Matters, and, and in it is a chapter about fearing God. And I quote Wilbur Reese, here it is, I'll get in front of me, I'm just going to read it. Maybe there's a listener who who needs to hear this. I need to read it. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough of him to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love somebody who's not like me or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. 
I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. As much as I'd like to give you one sentence on how to warn and correct other people, I can't. What I can say is walking closely with Christ is your best prevention. The closer you are to Christ, God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people, I think you've heard me say that at least once. God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people. That alignment is so critical. And then when you sense the drifting, when you see the drifting, when you see the nonsense books coming in that are taking people by storm, you can kindly and firmly and graciously smile and say, you know, I disagree with that, and here's why. That takes courage. And at the end of the day, that's a component of the leadership process, to have the courage to do the right thing in the right way and then go home. (laughs) This is Michael Easley in Context. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.